Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, yet ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Joe Schuldenrein back again with another episode of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Uh, as many of you may know, in the initial pilot for the program uh, many months ago, we explored the interface between science, sensationalism, religion, uh, going back to the Indiana Jones movies, which, uh, as far as I'm, I'm concerned, is, is a major springboard for the dissemination of uh, public appeal in archaeology generally and its, its distribution among uh, a large, large audience and the expansion thereof. And uh, one of the most intriguing elements of those movies was the fascination with the Bible and with items related to the Bible and how the material record of discovery of elements of the time period and more specifically items that would be considered holy or, or items that would document uh, periods during the Bible and, and some of the major events that occurred, how we can actually identify these if we can at all and how uh, grand interpretations are generated um, at, at the interface of the texts and the archaeology itself, and we discussed that extensively. And we have brought the topic up uh, over a variety of episodes, but today we are actually turning to the New Testament and to the, what's, what's now called the Jesus Discovery. And my guest is uh, Dr. James Tabor, who has been intimately involved with the recent identifications of ossuaries uh, that have been buried underneath uh, Jerusalem, which are taken to provide indications, if not evidence, of the uh, burial of of uh, the person that was known as Jesus. So I am very pleased to introduce to the program Dr. James Tabor, who is uh, the Chair of Religious Studies at the University of North Carolina in Charlotte. Jim, thanks so much for coming on the program. Good to be with you, Joe. Look forward to it. Yes, and uh, we are thrilled to talk about this, and, and I think that uh, what I'd really like to start with, Jim, is why don't you give us sort of an introduction as to you, how you yourself were brought into the project. I know you've worked with the f filmmaker Sim Simcha Jacobovici, and he has uh, produced a number of programs and been involved in a number of, of uh, popular television programs in which he introduced the theme. How are you brought into the project, and uh, why don't you discuss sort of the early part of it and, and, and how you came to get involved? Okay. Um, I'm not an archaeologist, so full disclosure, I'm a historian. I got my degree at Chicago, the same place you got yours in history, ancient history, mm -hmm. and for about Oh, 15 or 20 years of my career, I just sat in libraries and read texts and taught my classes. But uh, probably about 15 years ago, I started realizing, traveling to Israel, 
being involved in archaeology, just how important the material side of the evidence was. And I think there's been a real mushrooming of that in general in my field, which would be Christianity, early Christianity, what we call Christian origins, uh, the ancient Jesus movement and all about it. So what I began to do a decade or more ago was to combine the textual work I was doing with the archaeological work. As far as getting involved in the really two tombs that we'll be talking about, uh, one is under a condominium building today, modern building. It's about six feet under, literally, from the basement level. And so it's not accessible, but we were able to access it, as I'll tell you about in a minute. And the other is about 200 feet away, and that's the tomb that has the interesting set of six names, one of which is Jesus, son of Joseph, that got so much attention back in 207 when Jacobo Vici made his film on the Jesus family tomb. So I got involved even before the film came out. Uh, I met him at a conference, got interested in what he was doing, and we teamed up, he being the kind of documentary maker that would record what we would discover, and I was the a historian, and we brought in an archaeologist as well, Rami Arab from University of Nebraska. So we had a kind of a, a three-pronged team with lots of supporting staff. And that was back 2004, 2005, when we began our investigation. But the latest discovery is very hands-on uh, field work. It's very unusual because it's under this condominium building, but it's a first century tomb. It was discovered by bulldozers and blasting when the building was built in 1981. <clears throat> and then it was briefly examined by archaeologists for not more than a day, covered over, and the building was built on top of it. So when we went, we went back in 210, we we're essentially revisiting that tomb that had been discovered in 1981. Well, what did they and do in 1981, though? What they did in 1981, they took some photographs. We have the black and white photos they took. They briefly examined the ossuaries inside, but no details. Like they said, there's some Greek inscriptions or names, but they didn't, weren't able to tell what they were. They were actually run out by the Herodim, we call them, the ultra-Orthodox that uh, battle archaeologists all the time about sanctity of burial sites. And so of course. they were uh, essentially shut down. So that tomb just uh, stayed there all that time un undisturbed. And the way we accessed the tomb was getting down to the lowest level of the building with the permission of the condo owners, of course, and the permission of the religious groups. We got the Rabbi Schmidl who controls most of those groups to agree to allow us to do this under the stipulation that we wouldn't disturb anything. We would simply use uh, optical exploration. And so we drilled probe holes down through the floor, six feet down into the tomb from the top, and then a robotic uh, arm that was constructed just for this purpose by a Toronto engineer Walter Clausen. He does props for movies and all kinds of things. He's he's one of these kind of guys, you tell him what you need and he invents it for you. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So this arm, it's just amazing. It, 
it uh, it was worked remotely with all sorts of TV monitors and so forth. And then General Electric Technologies provided these high-definition little cameras that you can put on the end of a boom. And so we were down in the tomb doing this kind of virtual exploration. And, you know, a Jewish tomb of this type, it's, it's, it's carved out of solid bedrock. It's only about a meter and a half to two meters tall, so you could barely stand up in it if you're inside it. And it's about nine by nine feet. I'll just use feet for the American listeners here. I think you should. Yeah. The size of a bedroom, you know. And typically these tombs have niches where they uh, lay the bodies out for a year, and when the body decomposes, they gather the bones and put them in these ossuaries. Ossuary simply means a bone box. They're carved out of limestone. Right. And where they become of interest, to us particularly because what you can't do in Israel because of the sensitivity, and this is true in many parts of the world now, over the sacredness of human remains, you can't do anthropology, you can't really do DNA, you can't do much testing of the human remains, it's simply not allowed over there. But what you can do in a tomb is uh, look for inscriptions, because one of the customs of the time and this is first century CE or AD, what we call the time of Jesus, uh, in Herodian Jerusalem, late second temple uh, Jerusalem, before 70 AD when Jerusalem was destroyed, uh, they would scratch often on the sides of the ossuaries the names of the deceased and often then decorations and other motifs. Other than that, there's not a lot of interest in a Jewish tomb from, from this period. There's no grave goods. There, there might be a coin or two if somebody happened to accidentally drop it. Maybe a lamp left behind because the tomb would have been dark. But essentially, it's the ossuaries themselves, their bone contents, and the possible markings. So our purpose in probing this tomb was to see what might be written on any of the seven ossuaries inside, and that's exactly what we did. Now, you're talking again about using this, uh, using this robotic arm that um, you, you drilled, you drilled basically a hole. How big was the hole approximately? Uh, I think it was probably about, uh, I think, I'm trying to think in inches, probably about, Eight to ten, ten inches, I would say. Okay, so it's a pretty sizable hole, and then uh, and this was going through the basement of the original uh, discovery, which was uh, of the foundations of the original discovered condominium and and tomb underneath it, which was uh, discovered in 1980. Correct? Yeah, and we had two holes. Actually, we ended up doing three because you have to watch what you're doing. You know, sure. or you're not blind. So one was a control camera watching the other camera work. And it was just very eerie, I'll tell you. It was like landing on the moon in the sense that all of a sudden, the you know, we had just the whole corridor full of equipment. And when we finally got in, there was just a hush that went over the group because you realize you're you're looking at something that hasn't been looked at. Uh, for 2,000 years, other than that brief uh, one day in history when it was first discovered. And it's absolutely pitch dark, perfectly silent, and the camera's panning around, and you can hear the mechanism of the camera and the whirl of the camera, and then the camera, of course, is lit up. 
And uh, what we then did is very systematic. It was hard work. It took uh, days and days, just literally one by one, going, you know, getting the probe over to the ossuaries. There was a snake camera that could pop out even further than the main camera from the end of the probe, so it could actually, you know, curve around and like a like a camera they use for colonoscopies. You know, that's sort of right, thing. right, right, right. Of course. So uh, that was essentially what we did, and it has many other possible uses because often in archaeology you find crevices and cavities and holes, and there's no way to easily access what's inside. And so the Israel Antiquities Authority is actually quite excited about this because we've left the probe in Israel and the camera equipment, GE owns it, but it can be used uh, again. In fact, we're going to go back in and do some more work uh, later in the year. This, by the way, was licensed by the IAA, Israel Antiquities Authority, under the jurisdiction of my university. And Rami and, uh, was the archaeologist. We will, we'll have to take a break here, but when we return, we're going to talk to Jim Tabor at greater detail on the uh, exploration of the initial tomb, uh, that might have contained the Jesus remains, and we will continue that discussion after these messages. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Tune in to the Hoffman Connection for inspiration, a life of passion and purpose. Hosts Raz and Grossi and Ed McLoon will bring you ways to remove the blocks in your life that are holding you back. Along with their guest experts, Raz and Ed will use their experience and expertise to help you learn to get closer to what matters to you most. And by doing so, improve your life and the lives of others. The Hoffman Connection can be heard live every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We all want to be happy, but consider that conventional thinking is what got us where we are now. The good news is there's so much more to know that can give us a new and higher perspective. Tune in to A New View of Life with host Kathy Kirk as we unlock the conversational gridlock in America by exploring new ideas and new information on every aspect of life which is needed to move us not just forward but upward. A New View of Life airs live every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com.
listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. We are back uh, on this very provocative uh, program this afternoon. Uh, we're talking to Dr. Jim Tabor of the University of North Carolina, Charlotte, on the recent uh, discoveries of uh, a tomb that may have contained a series of ossuaries related to Jesus and possibly his family. And uh, we are talking about the discovery of the very first of the very first tomb. There were two of them. And Jim was explaining the uh, high-tech nature of the exploration because uh, a probe had to be extended six feet down from the basement of what is now a constructed condominium building that went into the location of the tomb. So very briefly, Jim, tell us uh, what you found uh, as a result of using these complex systems of cameras and probes. What did you find actually in the tomb itself? Okay, what we found uh, is illustrated. I better put in a plug for my book or my, my publisher will yell at me. It's called the You Jesus. can do that. Go ahead. Jesus Discovery, Simon & Schuster, you can get it any any of the usual places. But in the book, the reason I mention the book is not just to plug it, but you have drawings and illustrations and photographs and maps, and you see the robotic arm, and you see the team, and, you know, maps of everything that we did. It's all explained very thoroughly, and it's a readable book. It's uh, a trade book written for a non-specialist. But anyway, what we found... Uh, it's one of those things, Joe, I'm sure you've experienced it. It's, it's like when you're almost done and you almost haven't found anything and you're wondering, should we even have done this? Last minute uh, discovery. Sort of like at the last day, at the last hour, we were yeah. looking at the two ossuaries that were left to examine, and that's when we hit the pay dirt. The first thing that we found, uh, we found some names on other ossuaries, but names... Interesting, but not as, you know, they may or may not be significant. Like we found the name Mara, which we think might mean mistress in Hebrew, Mar and Mara, the feminine. And that's also a name that's in the other tomb that has the Jesus, son of Joseph, Ashuari. So that might be important. But what we found that was completely new was an image that we took to be a fish, a whale, uh, I guess you could say a big fish with a stick figure coming out of the mouth, an enlarged head. And immediately, of course, we thought of Jonah. And quite readily, we, because of the Jesus tomb nearby, we thought of the famous uh, passage in the New Testament where Jesus says, I will give you nothing but the sign of Jonah. If you remember in the Hebrew Bible, Jonah's in the belly of the fish. Everybody knows right. the Sunday school story, three days and three nights. Mm. And that, for early Christians, becomes the preeminent sign of resurrection, not the cross and not even the sign of the fish uh, outside of the Jonah image. Like, if you go to the Roman catacombs today, we have pictures of this in the book, the main image in the catacombs, the main Christian symbol, is the Jonah image. I think there's over a hundred Jonah images compared to 
you know, say 10 or 12 Noah and the Ark or some of the other images that Christians use to symbolize immortality. So we readily identified it as a symbol, not just of resurrection, but of something maybe to do with the Jesus movement. And we, I mean, a shout went up. It it was really exciting uh, to catch that moment. Now, the problem, see, two things with this. Jews don't put images of humans and animals on ossuaries. Uh, it would be seen as a kind of a graven image. There are images of uh, inanimate objects like jugs and jars and flora and fauna and that sort of thing. But to find an image representing a person coming out of the mouth of a fish was totally unique. And then right next to it, the second ossuary of the last two, we found a four-line Greek inscription. That is almost unprecedented. I think they're out of the six or seven hundred inscribed ossuaries that have ever been discovered in Jerusalem from this period. Only five or six have inscriptions on them other than names. This is actually a, a message of some type. And the way we translate it is, I, Jehovah God, raise up or lift up, and it uses a special Greek word, upso. So I, I, Jehovah God, lift up, and then the command, lift up. So if you look in the book of Jonah, chapter 2, the language of the inscription is coming right out of the book of Jonah. Jonah's in the belly of the fish, and he prays out, O Jehovah God, lift me up. So whoever wrote the inscription and carved the Jonah image is trying to say something about God lifting up somebody and the fish, therefore, standing for death, just like the ossuary. So, I mean, it's a number of firsts. It would, if this holds up, and it's controversial, there's a lot of debate about it, but if it holds right. up, this would be the earliest uh, Christian iconography ever found on the planet. And I use Christian in scare quotes because, obviously, these were Jews who followed Jesus, but to call them Christians is premature at this early period. You know, they're Jewish followers of Jesus. They're part of a Messianic movement. But for them to daringly put a kind of resurrection message on a tomb was quite striking. So that's basically the discovery in that tomb. Now, the other tomb... Well, before you get away. to before yeah. you get to the other okay. tomb, I got a couple of questions for you who are on this because it is intriguing. Uh, I, you've not, you, nobody's actually touched it, correct? No, nope. and uh, the archaeologists that went in in 1981, uh, I think it was uh, April 15th or 16th. They said they were in there for maybe 10, 15 minutes, and then got run out. I don't even know that they. I mean, they didn't report what any of the Greek writings said, and so they just said there, there's three Greek names is what they said. So Right. But no, we were not touching anything. In fact, we didn't even move anything, although we had the ability with the probe to do that, but we didn't do it. Right, but you're, you're basically, you reconstruct, you, you interpreted the inscription, which clearly was in ancient Greek, uh, based on the on the uh, photographed imagery, correct? That's right. Yeah, we have high okay. resolution photos, and that's how we did it. Mm-hmm. Right, which is which is elegant in and of itself. Now, the question I have is, 
you said Jehovah was written in there. Was it written in the Greek or in the ancient Hebrew? Well, here's what's interesting about the script, the uh, inscription. The first word is Dios, which means the divine or God. Right. And then it's yeah. Iao in Greek, which is the Greek way of writing Yahweh or Jehovah. I got it. Okay. And then Upso, I raise up. And then it has Hagba in Greek. But Hagba in Hebrew, you know, if you know in the synagogue, when they lift the Torah, they call it the Hagba, yeah. the lifting to up elevate, the To elevate, to raise. Yeah, exactly. So Hagba is written in Greek. In fact, it, it took us a while to figure this out because we had A, B, uh, G. Uh, yeah, no, A, G, B, Hagba. Right. And it was like, well, what a, that's not a Greek word. You know, it's not even a word. And then we figured out, oh, no, it's, they're trying to represent the Aramaic or the Hebrew. Right, right. So it's a plea for God, almost like saying, God said he would lift up. Lift up. You know, go ahead and do it. It's in the imperative, in other words. So, so you're put, putting all this together, and it sort of converges out uh, into resurrection of some sort. Yeah, whether, whether the family, it's a family term, all these terms are family terms, whether the family is saying Jesus has been raised or because Jesus has been raised, we too have the hope of the sign of Jonah. You know, it's hard to say, but they're, they're wanting to proclaim something about this idea of the sign of Jonah. So I've got a whole chapter in the book called The Sign of Jonah, tracing it in history and what it might mean. Now, the critics, to be fair, have said it's not even a fish. It's an amphora, which you probably know is, uh, I don't know how many of the listeners will know that word, but like a vase, you know, a right. crater or a vase. Right. And the, what we see as the fins, they see as handles on the vase, which we see as the fish's tail, they see as the mouth of the vase. But the thing that we've now discovered in the mouth of the fish, or the base of the vase, <laughs> is the <laughs> word yod vav or the letters, rather, Yod Vav Nun Hey Yonah, actually written in Hebrew, right? And it, it, it it's like it's the strangest thing in the world. I, I've looked at this for hours and never saw it. Finally, one of our researchers saw it and says, "Wait a minute! If you turn that a certain way, isn't that Jonah?" And then once you see it, that's all you can see. In fact, if you get the picture off the web and look at it, you know Hebrew. You'll immediately see it says Jonah very clearly. So I think, for me, that uh, clinched the case. But as you know, there are three things you don't find in archaeology, in biblical archaeology. You don't find the Ark of the Covenant. You don't find Noah's Ark. And you don't find the tomb of Jesus. And the reason is, they're kooky. these are kooky things to find. You know, you, you talked about sensationalism. In other words, not only too good to be true, too good to be credible. Right. And so... Whenever you talk about maybe finding something that relates to Jesus or this other tomb we'll get to that's 200 feet away, maybe even being the tomb of Jesus, not only do you have the theological problem that the bones of Jesus, according to fundamentalist Christians, can't be on the earth because he was assumed into heaven bodily, but for my colleagues, it's, it's just like a nutty thing to be involved in. You know, like, oh, yeah, right, what are you going to find next? You know, (laughs) 
the tr- pieces of the true cross or something like that. And so the what we're up against, I think, is sometimes sensational things are found quite by accident. I mean, after all, we didn't discover this tomb. A bulldozer found it. Right. So the bulldozer is the is is the culprit here. But as you know, the Caiaphas tomb has been found. I think that's too good to be true. Right. Other that was the high priest in the time of Jesus. His you know his ossuaries had been found of his family. Occasionally, things do turn up, and it's not as amazing as you might think if you realize Jerusalem is a town of what twenty five to thirty thousand. Right. There's this necropolis of tombs all around the city, and since the Six-Day War in 1967, that whole area has been bulldozed and built up with with roads and streets and buildings and so forth. And so the idea that you would come across a tomb of some identifiable person from the period is not very far-fetched. It just doesn't, it shouldn't be Jesus. That's the problem. And on that note, we'll have to take another break, and when we come back... We will discuss the uh, other tomb, the one that was reported about in 2007, and we will ask Jim to put the two tombs together and uh, generate what his interpretation is of these findings, and we will be back in a few minutes after these words. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Women make up more than half of the country's workforce. Companies that have women on the board generally set the pace and outperform other companies in the same industries. So why aren't we using the power of voice and choice to move ahead? Tune in to The Awe Factor, Advancing Women Everywhere, with host Carol Cicino. You'll hear from the business and thought leaders that took chances and made a difference. Listen as they share their stories with Carol every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in every week for Sex Out Loud. Host Tristan Termino will discuss everything from sexual pleasure to sexual politics. Get an insider's perspective from leaders in the adult film industry, the LGBT community, and the sex-positive world. From kink to non-monogamy, nothing is off-limits. Plus, you can call in to join the conversation. Sex Out Loud airs every Friday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 Pacific, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you a homeowner who's trying to save on energy bills and go green at the same time? Tune into Energy Saving in the Home, brought to you by 521 Compressor Saver and Home Energy Consultants, with hosts Gary Parr and Dennis Seltzer. They have saved homeowners just like you as much as 65% on energy bills through energy efficiency practices. You'll learn about conservation, products, and services to reduce energy consumption and save you money. Be sure to listen to Energy Saving in the Home, live every Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast all the time the number one internet talk station where your opinion counts voiceamerica.com you're listening to indiana jones myth reality and 21st century archaeology with dr joseph schuldenrein to be a part of our discussion today please call 1-866-472-5788 that's 1-866-472-5788 or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com now back to the program Welcome back, everyone. Uh, we are talking about the uh, Jesus discovery, uh, the new archaeological finding that reveals the birth of Christianity. It's certainly a controversial issue. And uh, we have with us, very fortunately, Dr. James Tabor, who is a chairman of the Department of Religious Studies at the University of North Carolina in Charlotte, who is involved in the exploration of the two tombs that are now ostensibly linked to the Jesus findings. And we have discussed the most recent uh, findings uh, using uh, a remote camera. And uh, Jim had explained uh, some very interesting iconography uh, on, on the tomb, on the ossuaries that were discovered in this tomb. And what I'd like for you to talk about, Jim, at this point is to recap where we were on the very first tomb, the one that sort of caused the original splash about five years ago. Why don't you discuss that one first and then try to put this together for us? Okay, I'll do that. And I I should say, these are in Jerusalem, just south of the old city in a neighborhood called Talpiot. So some of your listeners have heard that word, perhaps. So we call them the Talpiot tombs. Okay, the first tomb, the other, let's call it the other tomb, not the one we did with the robotic arm. That was uh, discovered in 1980. The robotic arm, the one under the uh, condo, was 1981. So they were discovered a year apart, also by bulldozers and blasting. And that one has been completely excavated. It's empty today. The ossuaries from that tomb, there were 10 ossuaries. They're in the Israel Antiquities uh, uh, collection, the state collection of Israel. And of the ten ossuaries, six had names. And, of course, the name that immediately raises the most interest, and the, I'm going to give them in English, but uh, they were all in Aramaic or Hebrew and Greek, uh, Jesus, son of Joseph. And then, in addition to that, there was a Maria, a Mary, and a Mariamne, also called Mara. And then there was a Matthew, and then there was a Jude, son of Jesus, and a Yose. So those are the six names, Yose being a nickname for Joseph. Now, some of those names are fairly common. For example, Maria or Mary, forms of Mary, Mariam. It's the second most common female name of the time, you know, uh, for Jews living in that area. And Jesus is relative, people say it's common, and I think it was 3.9% of males were named Jesus. Uh, Joseph was quite common as well. I think it was the second most common name. So I think at the time when these were discovered, they weren't noted as significant. Just, okay, you've got a Jesus, son of Joseph. But as I often say, 
uh, that could be Jesus the baker. You know, why? Right. So it would be like finding uh, a tomb with Paul and George and uh, John and then Ringo, (laughs) you know, in England. Uh, In other words, is there a Ringo in this tomb? Well, the Jesus son of Joseph raises... uh, uh, raises interest, but the Yosei is kind of the Ringo of the tomb, because Yosei is a very rare form of the nickname Joseph, and it's used for one of Jesus' brothers in the Gospels, in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, verse 3, where he's called not Joseph, the full name, but Yosei. And that uh, Yosei, written in Aramaic like that, has, has never been found on any other ossuary. And so it's extremely rare. And then Mariamne, another name, only occurs two times in all of Greek literature in that form, with the N sound on the end, Mariamne, and that both referring to Mary Magdalene in in, litera- in Greek literature. And so that, to us, uh, formed a kind of a cluster that then became statistically significant. So right. the argument we make in the book is that even though people, and I mean, even my best friends and colleagues at Duke and Chapel Hill, if you call them today, they would say, well, Joe, you know, Tabor's uh, overdoing it here. These names are common. But the point is, no other tomb in Jerusalem of the thousand or so that have been uncovered has any cluster of names that you could even argue might fit the Jesus family. And in this case, all of these names fit the Jesus family. The problem is Jesus would be married and have a kid, and that doesn't fit theology, plus you would have his bones. So the real question is, uh, you know, do we go by theology or do we go by history? And what we try to argue in the book is that even the idea of Jesus being raised from the dead bodily is not a is not the earliest Christian view of resurrection, that they talked about sleeping in the dust, and rising up, they didn't necessarily think that you have to collect the bones. They talk about the dead coming from the sea. You know, the sea gives up the dead that are in it, which doesn't, again, mean collecting bones. And so we give an interpretation in the book that would allow someone to believe, because we've got next door somebody proclaiming the resurrection and celebrating the sign of Jonah. So how do you put these together? So the way we put it together is that the earliest followers of Jesus we're having visions of an exalted heavenly Jesus who's been lifted up, as the Greek inscription says. But they were perfectly okay with with the bones as as kind of like a as Paul says, the Apostle Paul, he says resurrection is like shedding your old clothing and putting on new clothing. And you leave the old clothing behind, in other words. That this was the earliest view. Now that's not the view that you later get in the Gospels. You know, where Jesus says, touch me, and here are my wounds, and he's walking around like a resuscitated corpse. But that's 70, 80, 90 A.D., and we're thinking this goes back to within decades of uh, of, the, of Jesus' death in 30. So we think we might have tapped into what the original view of resurrection was, because they definitely were saying he was raised from the dead. But did they necessarily think that his corpse had walked around, you see? Right. So so basically what you're saying 
is that as as in many cases the the uh, the symbolism uh, starts with something that's basically very close to a reality of some sort with the interpretations being done by his original followers and then it takes takes on sort of mythological proportions and, and over for time apologetic reasons what happened yeah. when pagans would say to the christians come on you know maybe you hallucinated or saw a ghost Right. You know, Paul sees Jesus on the road to Damascus. How do we know what Paul saw? People see things all the time. Of course. And one of the ways they countered this was saying, oh, no, no, they touched him, he ate a meal, and so forth. But in Mark's account, which is the earliest, this is astounding, people don't realize this, the Gospel of Mark has no appearances of Jesus. He doesn't appear. And so he says they see him in a heavenly vision, uh, in in the Gospel of Matthew, it even says some doubted. So it's not so clear in the Gospels what that initial experience was. We think the archaeology might help us interpret that. In the sense that? That if you have a Jesus family tomb with the bones of Jesus in it, but next to it you have a related tomb on the same plot of land. I didn't mention that. These are these tombs are actually connected. They were part of an ancient estate. And right. people are celebrating the sign of Jonah, which is the sign that God will raise the dead after three days and three nights, only associated with Jesus. Jews don't Jews did not traditionally use Jonah as a symbol of resurrection. This is something right. that goes back to the Jesus followers. And Jonah in Judaism is more of a symbol of somebody that runs from God and then repents. So it's very different. That's a traditional story, yes. Yeah, we see the archaeology is is interpreting uh, maybe what the earliest form of the faith was, that they, they realized, as Paul says, that you could shed your earthly body, and it would be like old clothing left behind, and then you would put on the new clothing, which was the new body, the resurrection body. And that's, they believe Jesus was in heaven, in other words. He was sitting at the right hand of God. He'd been lifted up. And we think and do argue in the book that, the, the, that this tomb has a possibility and a likelihood of being the tomb of Jesus without that being a scandal for the earliest followers. That, that's the argument of the book. And on that note, uh, we're going to move into our final break. And when we get back, I'd like to talk to Jim how the, the uh, let's call it the symbolism and the eventual interpretations of what happened to Jesus and, 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 and what the real story is behind that, how that emerged and how we can sort of try to get at the interface between myth and reality in looking at this particular discovery, if in fact this uh, represented the actual bones of a person named Jesus who assumed uh, symbolic and mythical proportions going down the road. And we'll be back and talk about this in our final segment after these words. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. 
Are you ready to change your relationships, your business, your body, and your life? You'll want to tune in to Transformation Talk Radio with host Tony Litster. It's an inspiring hour of conversation, special guests, and wisdom that has made Tony an expert with personal life experience. His down-to-earth style will give you the keys to unlock your greatest potential. Listen for Transformation Talk Radio live every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Listening can truly change your life. Are you a single parent trying to create the balance between home life and work life? You may be running a successful business, but how are your relationships with your family and children? If you're one of the thousands of people trying to juggle it all, tune in to Straight Up with Chris, real talk on business and parenthood, hosted by Chris FSU. Chris is the portrait of the success story, coming to the U.S. with no language skills, founding and growing several businesses, while raising his daughter from age 7 to adulthood as a single dad. Listen every Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. We're back. Uh, this is Joe Schuldenrein on the program, Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. We have been discussing the discovery of two very significant tombs, uh, probably related to a family, who uh, were the descendants and the, uh, the compatriots of, of, of the person called Jesus, a person called Jesus, who uh, apparently... Uh, as was a very symbolic and significant uh, individual who inspired many, many followers. And uh, Jim Tabor is basically trying to explain how that reality eventually evolved into what we now know is the evolution of the Christian religion. And Jim, why don't you pick us up, pick it up from the theme of the actual discovery of the tombs, the identification, not the identification, but let's assume the preservation of these bones. And where do we go from there? Where are we, say, right after the, the death of this individual? Okay. The, I think the key that we can now understand for the first time, really, is that this tomb with Jesus, son of Joseph, in it is not the tomb in the Gospels that was found empty. It's a second tomb. In other words, what we, let's try to get as close as we can to the history first, and then we can do the myth and the theology. What we read in the Gospels is that Jesus was crucified. The traditional spot is the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem, so we could accept that as a possibility. But what the Gospels say is that they had to hastily bury him because it was the night of the Passover Seder. It was Friday night, and the Passover was that night, and so they couldn't complete the rites of burial. 
So what the Gospel of John says is that there happened to be a tomb nearby where he was crucified, and so they put him temporarily in that tomb. That's not this Tapio tomb. That's up in the city where he was crucified. And then Joseph of Arimathea has taken charge of the burial. He has the legal responsibility to bury Jesus. He comes and takes the body probably Saturday night, right after the Passover holidays over, and takes it to his own property, perhaps, if this is his property in Talpiot, but somehow reburies the body permanently then, and that becomes the Jesus family tomb. So the empty tomb, this way, is explained. Right. It, it's empty because it was, it, call it a tomb of emergency. It was a, a tomb of convenience. It was basically, what do you do with a corpse when you can't wash it, you can't anoint it, you can't complete the rites of Jewish burial? Well, then when the women come early Sunday morning, their intention very clearly, you know, the Easter story, is to come and anoint the body of Jesus, and Mary Magdalene is leading the, the group. And the mother of Jesus is there, and the sister, and so forth. And they find the tomb empty. And at first they think, well, somebody's taken the body, which I think is exactly what happened. What happened, yeah. But, but as far as believing Jesus was raised, that was based not on finding the body or the missing body, but was more on visionary experience. And so I don't have any doubt that, that these followers, how soon I'm not sure, but they did begin to have the assurance that Jesus had been spiritually raised and taken up to heaven. They believed that he survived. It's a lot like the Lubavitch group today, you know, the Jewish group that some people know in New York, who they believe their Rebbe is the Messiah. He the Messiah. Right. He, yeah, he died a few years ago. They still visit his grave. That's but right. But they still think he has been taken up to heaven. And so for, in Judaism, the presence of the bones of a person does not preclude their resurrection. In other words, this isn't what Judaism doesn't understand resurrection as finding bones. As I said, if the sea gives up the dead, and the way Daniel says it, those who sleep in the dust, it's a metaphor. Obviously, right. you don't have to go collect the dust. Some people are cremated. Their ashes are scattered. You don't have to collect the ashes to believe in resurrection. Resurrection is the faith that God has reconstituted the person in a new spiritual existence. And so that explains, then, the accounts that we have. And then the Talpiot tomb that, that we're talking about exploring recently would be the permanent resting place of Jesus and his family, but it wouldn't preclude the faith that he had been raised from the dead. So that's how we're putting it together. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. <clears throat> but, you know, in the few minutes that we have remaining, I just want to ask you, have you yet received any response from the fundamentalist community and the folks who believe in the very literal interpretation of the disappearance of the body and that he is risen. Have you gotten any response? Because I imagine that will be a very, very controversial issue, and that uh, some people might call you to the carpet on this thing. Oh, absolutely. Well, in 207, when the first tomb came to light, the Jesus tomb, 
We got tremendous opposition. In fact, there was so much protest that Discovery Television kind of backed down and only showed the documentary one time. Right. But with this tomb, it's interesting. There hasn't been as much opposition because of the sign of Jonah and the resurrection inscription. It's almost like I've got good news and bad news. I've got good news. We found the first evidence of faith in Jesus' resurrection, the first evidence of the saying of Jesus about the sign of Jonah, you know, written in stone. So that's good. But then the bad news, I guess, would be, and it's right next door to a tomb with Jesus and his family. And so I think what some of my uh, evangelical Christian friends have said is, well, look, we think your discovery is significant, and these are followers of Jesus, but that particular Jesus, son of Joseph, is probably another Jesus. <laughs> so okay. it's Christian, but it's not him, that sort of thing. Back to yeah, the Jesus, or... the baker idea, you know? And it's not Jesus, son of Joseph, the Nazarene, but it's Jesus, some other Jesus. But the problem then is you have the Yose, which is a ringer for his name, for his brother's name, and you've got the Mariamne, which seems to be identified with uh, Mary Magdalene, and so that uh, the form of the names has to all be considered together. In the book, we give the statistical analysis of all this, by the way, you know, how you can put all this together. You mean the coincident convergence of yeah, all like these names? Had, it's if a you had a stadium with 50,000 people, that'd right. be the popular, and you said, okay, all the Jesuses stand up, you know, you would have so right. many, 3.9%, and then you say, okay, sit down if your father's not named Joseph, and then, you know, half of them would sit down, and then you say, okay, any of you have a brother named uh, Yose, uh, and, and you use that particular nickname, and a mother named Maria, and it gets very... Like, I had somebody do my own name. My name is James. My wife is Lori. My kids are even Seth. And it was determined that out of, what do we have, 380 million people in America right now, there's no right. other family in the United States with that cluster of names. No family right. of four. Right. And you would think, well, yeah, Eve is not real common in Seth, but James and Lori, that's very common. There's got to be maybe one other family. But it's when you put the cluster together sure. is when you really get the... Uh, the statistical results. So, so it's certainly well, uh, with the new tomb right next door, and somebody celebrating Jesus' resurrection. I think it goes a long way towards making this uh, much more uh, probable. And and on that note, I think we're going to have to leave it to scholars and the general population and the folks who are interested in archaeology and Christianity to argue this out, I think you have raised some very, very significant issues that bear significantly on theology and contemporary Christianity and really the entire story of Jesus that's, that's starting to make some serious sense in, in terms of the archaeological record and how we are able to interpret this. And I, I want to take this opportunity to thank Jim Tabor for enlightening us on uh, these recent finds and providing a scientific and historical perspective on what this means. And again, thank you so much Thanks, for Joe. listening. And let me mention my blog is jamestabor.com because I have a lot of posts about this that people can go to and, and delve into. So. 
Thank you, Jim. I really appreciate okay, it. Okay, thanks, Joe. Good talking to you. We're appreciating all of this, and stay tuned next time. Uh, we'll have another episode. And un- until then, have a wonderful week. See you next time. Thank you. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.